on to the sermon. Um, I couldn't help but look around a little bit this morning uh, during worship and see, I think... Has camp almost run its course? Because it seems like most people are back already. I'm kind of looking around, seeing lots of faces I haven't seen uh, all over summer. Um, and just want to say, hey, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. And it's my privilege to get to uh, bring the message to you this morning. And we're actually still hanging out uh, in a series called Flipped, uh, where Jesus changes everything. And it's a look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that's found in Matthew uh, chapters 5 uh, through 7. And uh, I have to be honest, I've been, I've been away a good chunk of the summer, and so I've missed a lot of the great teaching that we've had uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but as I spent the last couple of weeks in preparation getting ready for today, I was reminded again what an incredible job Matthew does in his book of drawing together these teachings of Jesus and recording them for us. And they are deep and they are wide. And I'm just, I'm really excited to get to uh, teach you guys this morning and to preach to you and to share uh, with you some of the insights that I, that I had. Uh, if those of you that are into totes or into taking notes and sermon titles, uh, really this morning's message is all about how Jesus changes your faith. Jesus changes your faith. And the scripture that we're going to be looking at is found in Matthew 7, uh, 7 to 12. So if you'd like, you can turn there uh, in your Bibles, and we'll get to that in, in just a minute. But as I was thinking about the title of our series about how flipping, how it seems like much of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes kind of commonly believed things or things that people held to, and he flips them. He turns them and he changes their perspective on it or their outlook on it. And I got thinking about how all this sense of flipping and changing and saying, you think this, but really I suggest this, I kind of felt like, don't you find that it's kind of destabilizing? Like, I sort of wrestle with this notion that I'm, I'm a guy who likes to have a plan, likes to know what that plan is, and likes to stick to that plan. And I don't like, or I get uneasy when there's sort of interruptions or things don't go really according to plan. Is there anybody else out there this morning that's like that? You like, the, and even if it's a bad plan, like even... We can all agree it's a bad plan. I still like to stick to the plan, right? It's just there's something important about this is the way things is. This is my reality, and I'm going to walk according to this. And there's a sense of stability and security in that. And I find what Jesus does in terms of flipping and changing, how the original hearers, they must have, en they must have encountered something like that, sort of a, a destabilizing as Jesus unpacks or repackages all these lessons of things that they're building their life on and things that they thought were of utmost importance, and yet Jesus is saying, uh, we're going to change that. And if I'm honest, it gets me kind of asking questions about my own faith. And I realize my faith is small. That I, I, tend to, I tend to play small with faith. I tend to shy away in moments where I feel like this is a moment I should be leading or a moment I should be stepping out. I feel like I'm reluctant or hesitant and wondering and questioning. And I feel like the word that God has for us this morning wants to address this notion of faith in us. To not play small with it, but to have it in its right place. 
to take it from being uh, something that's destabilizing. And I don't, I don't believe that Jesus' intention was ever to, to de- destabilize for the sake of chaos, right? No, we believe that in the Sermon of the Mount, he's laying out a vision of God's kingdom that he's ushering into this world. And so it, his teaching is meant to bring a greater sense of clarity and actually a greater sense of stabilization to us as we hear what he has to say and as we trust him. And so I hope that that's where we land this morning as I get the opportunity to speak to you. That we land in a place where we can go away from here with some concrete ideas in, in, in living our lives according to it to bring a greater sense of stability and a greater sense of awareness of what God is doing in and through our lives. Does that make sense? Now, it might be a crash landing. For those of you who attend Hillcrest for a while, you know we love to preach and sometimes we go long and I'm, I'm no, I'm a, Am I a victim? Am I guilty of that? Or is it a, I don't know, or is it a blessing? But I I want you to know, I I do have, I want to get to my landing this morning. So if it gets to like 1150, can somebody give me like just, like I'm probably going to be cruising up around 35,000 feet uh, in the scriptures. I'm looking forward to it. But there's a a specific point at which I need to land. And so it might need to be a mayday landing. You know what I'm saying? Like where, you know, like usually those pilots, they're so good at it, right? They, They take off, they stabilize, they cruise at a certain altitude. And then when, you know, long before they get to their destination, they're planning ahead to land. I don't know, I'm a young preacher, I'm just learning my ropes at this. Sometimes it's like, it's like you need to land now, and so it's like a mayday. So at, at 10-2, you have my permission, somebody call out mayday, and I'll, I'll bring this thing down. Okay, we'll land it. We'll, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm glad that you won't be disappointed that you're here for this ride uh, this morning. If I had to sum up everything that I'm going to say uh, this morning, it could really be done in three words, okay? Those words are ask, trust, and obey. Instructions that I believe Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, and I have the honor of kind of jumping in with that uh, this morning. So before we read God's word, uh, I'm just going to ask his blessings. So would you, would you please pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that the entire Bible points to you. We thank you that you are the climax of history, and that you are the only one worth giving our whole lives to. You are the only one calling Lord. You are the only one calling King and offering our lives in service to you. And Jesus, I believe that you want to speak to us. I believe that you want to encourage us by your spirit. So this morning, this August 25th, this Sunday, would you meet with us? We ask a blessing over your word that as we read it and as we look into it, May it not just be with our minds and our understanding, but may it also be with our hearts. So Jesus, by your spirit, come and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name. So here we go. I'm in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm uh, looking at, I'm in chapter 7 of Matthew, and we're looking at um, verses 7 to 12. And I'm going to kind of piece it out in three chunks. And so, Really, there's three points. There's ask, trust, obey. And, and just the way that it worked out, my points are descending in the sense that for the first point, there'll be three things I'm going to say about it. And then for the second point, there'll be two things I'm going to be speaking about. And then for the last point, there's only going to be kind of one main thing that I'm going to say. So it's kind of like three, two, one, descending order. So you can be encouraged that if it seems like I'm taking my time on the first point, hey, each one after thereafter has one less point, okay? And we'll... 
We'll get, we'll get on our way here. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me, uh, we'll read these first couple of verses. Here's Jesus teaching Sermon on the Mount. Uh, last week, he had just spent some time talking about judging. And even then, I got the sense of like the flipping, like this kind of destabilizing nature where he's saying like, don't judge. Like uh, the measure that you use to judge, you will be judged. Um, and he goes through about saying not judging and you know, you've got a speck. Don't try and take the speck out of your brother's eye if you've got a log in your own eye. But then at the end, he, he says, don't cast your pearl before swine and don't give what's sacred to dogs. So it's sort of like Jesus has this flip-floppy nature where it's, it's not just all black and white, but there's kind of this nuance to it. And it's interesting that from there here, we jump into these verses and he says, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened isn't that an amazing promise isn't it neat how it's jesus reiterates in in some ways it seems like it's saying the same thing it's saying pray pray and pray and then he says and everyone who prays they'll get an answer to their prayer and those who pray get an answer to their prayer and those who pray get an answer to their prayer and i can't help but think that this is a great opportunity to talk about context in terms of verses in the Bible. Because I feel like this is a verse, these are verses that we can so easily pull out and build our lives on in terms of this is carte blanche, this is God says, ask and he will give. But it's important that we understand that these verses exist within within a context, within a greater story, the Sermon on the Mount, if you will. And so it's really important that we look at sort of what that context is to kind of lead us and guide us to navigating these verses. Now, because you can see where this could go bad. You can think, well, if I ask for anything, I could ask for a new Lamborghini and God says that he'll give it to me. Or I could ask for a brand new house or we could ask for anything. We could ask for, you know, anything for our own gain. And it, it seems like if you took just these verses, it's saying that God is going to give that to you. And so I'd like to take a minute. Now, I'm, I, I, this is one of my favorite things. So if we can go to the next slide, please. I'm going to kind of walk us through this in terms of the context um, on the Sermon on the Mount. So yeah, JJ's laughing. He knows this is just, this is Chris's thing. So just indulge me for a moment. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount, it's a weird word, but it's called a chiasm, where uh, literarily, as it's written out, it's not just a whole bunch of mix mash stuff put together, bundled up, called the Sermon on the Mount. Like, I don't think Jesus delivered his messages like that, and Matthew certainly isn't, isn't wanting to do that with how he's presenting what Jesus is saying to us this morning. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, it's a chiasm where you begin, it has a beginning and it has an end, And it has a very central middle point that is sort of like the main gusto, the main point of what Matthew is wanting to show Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's really neat. As you, I encourage you, spend some time reading the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. And it's really neat because you'll, at the very beginning, you'll notice that he goes up on a mountainside to teach, okay, and his disciples come with him. So we're told, too, that the Sermon on the Mount isn't just for everybody that he's speaking to just mass crowds, but he's actually speaking and teaching specifically to his disciples, those who have committed their lives to following him. And then on the other side of it, so this is sort of where the balance comes in, is on the other side of it, at the end of it, going in from the end of chapter 7 into 8, it says that he finishes teaching and he comes down. And the crowds and the disciples, they're amazed because he teaches with one 
as authority. And then next, uh, on the next slide here, uh, we have a, this, there's an invitation where Jesus moves into sort of with the Beatitudes and stuff. He's given an invitation to the kingdom of what the kingdom of God looks like. And on the other balanced side, which is actually where we're going in the next couple of weeks following this sermon, is that he leans into giving an exhortation into living it out, making a choice to commit your life and to live the way that Jesus has instructed. And then next, as we move our way up the mountainside here, uh, Jesus, uh, in 5, kind of 17 to 20, we have this notion that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Matthew says it right in there. He says Jesus has not come to abolish stuff, but he's come to fulfill it. Fulfill the law and the prophet. And then on the other side, we have this neat little statement, which we actually get to get into, uh, provided it's not a crash landing here for me this morning. But this idea that the golden rule, that it's a summary of the law and the prophets. And so we see some of this, uh, like, symmetry between the Sermon on the Mount, between how it starts and how it ends. And as it builds, the next stage here, are there there's six words sort of regarding the law, in terms of how to understand the law, and Jesus brings clarity on that. And then on the other side, he's got six words, and I, I use, I, like, the prophets, because it's all about the law and the prophets. And, but prophets could sort of be understand sort of this idea of, like, they were concerned with social justice. So our interactions and our relationships with other people are, are important. And then, oh, guys, this is a, we come to the summit. And the summit, at the summit of the Sermon on the Mount, get this, Jesus offers three words about worship. This idea of prayer. And we'll, we'll, We'll jump back into that a little bit later, if, if you'll permit me. Um, and we're going to just, we're going to move on here. So in that verse that we just looked at, there's really three things. There's this notion of asking, seeking, and knocking. And because these verses are actually coming out sort of just on the heels of sort of we've just already been at the summit and Jesus had just taught on prayer, we know that these have to do with seeking God's kingdom. That there's an alignment that comes in the immediate context that we're not just asking for anything because Jesus just said, your needs are looked after, but seek first God's kingdom. And so we know that these verses are not about gaining our own thing or building our own kingdom, but seeking God's kingdom. A closer look at these three words sort of looks like there's a sense of increasing levels of effort or investment. Tim, if you want to go to the next slide there, we'll kind of walk our way through these. So with ask. So the first thing is, there's this notion of asking. This, um, wow, asking. Pretty simple, right? Simple notion. You need something, you ask for it. Can I tell you something? As a guy, I don't like asking for help. I just don't. And there's a few reasons for that. It's one more noble reason, maybe, I'd say, is that, like, I don't like inconveniencing people. I don't like having to ask for help in the sense that I don't want to inconvenience. Other people are busy, they have their own lives, and I don't like inconveniencing people. But on the other hand, if I'm honest, and maybe you can relate to this, I just want to see how much I can do myself. Right? I don't like to ask for help because I can figure it out myself. So whether I'm lost, trying to figure out where I'm going, you know, that's the classic guy situation. Mine, more relatable to a Tupperware shed. The last couple of weeks, I've been doing some work in my backyard. And I have a great big 10 foot by 7 foot 
what I call a Tupperware shed, just one of those big plastic sheds. And it's up on a treated base, some two-by-sixes that I put together. And I put this, they built this thing, put it in place, was happy, and then Jenna decided to make some changes with the way that our backyard, sorry for throwing you under the bus, baby, but the way that our yard's set up, and so this shed's got to get moved. So I moved the fence, and now I'm going to move this shed. Jenna actually heads out on errands, and I'm like, I think... I think I can do this. So I had some steel poles, and I laid the steel poles down, and I was able to use a fulcrum and a, a lever, and I got one edge of the shed kind of propped up, and I got these posts underneath, and I attached some, some chains, and my wife had emptied the whole shed, because I would have tried to move it with all that stuff in there. You know I would have. <laughs> she emptied the shed for me, and I'm pulling the shed, and I get it propped up on these steel posts, and by the time she comes back, from errands, I've got this shed already relocated in the corner of the property. I was pretty impressed with myself. Until it came to a point where I had this thing up on blocks and I'm trying to get the foundation stones in place. And so I'm positioning them under there. And it's kind of finicky because I've got to be on the lever holding the front of the shed up. But then I also need to be over at the corner of the shed to move the block. And I'm sure my neighbor who observes a lot of what goes on in our backyard, was probably laughing at me because I'm literally sitting on the end of this fulcrum, keeping this thing up, and then reaching, trying to keep my weight on there and get these patio blocks in the same spot. And it looked ridiculous. And you know what? It went so far as that I actually started looking around the backyard for stuff I could stack on a ladder to hold this lever. To, and it's like stuff is falling over. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And clearly, I need some help. I cannot do this on my own. So, Jen was already back, so I said, honey, would you please come? And so as a, you know, kind, considerate husband, you know, I put her on that lever to hold the thing while I did the finesse of wiggling the blocks. And it was hilarious because it's probably like a six-foot bar, and my wife is there all of her weight, just like bouncing as the shed is bobbing, and I'm yelling at her to, anyways. Built in with this notion of asking is the reality that there's a sense of humility that we need help, that we can't do it on our own, that we need help. Next, it moves on to this notion of seeking, where it's not just simply asking, but investing a reasonable amount of effort into pursuing what's asked for. So seeking out the will of God, looking for it, searching for it, investing time and energy into pursuing it, kind of takes it to the next level. You know, uh, just like how a kid, a, a kid is just great at, they, they realize that they're tiny and can't even see up on the cupboard. And so if they need something, they're quick to just ask. I have four children, seven down through nine months. And let me tell you, our house is a fury of questions all the time. Like Jen and I sometimes look at each other across the table with this look of tired, tiredness, just going like, will these questions ever end. Like, there, it's just a barrage of questions. And, and Jenna feels it more than I do because she's home at the kids, kids longer. But kids ask. But you know what kids are also good at doing? Is if, say, Maya's out in the yard and in my cram-it-all Tupperware shed, I've thrown their bikes in there and she's unable to get her bike on her own, she would ask for help. And if I'm there, of course, I'd want to help her. But if I'm not there, what does Maya do? She's not content. She wants to ride her bike. So she's not content to just stand there. She seeks out help. 
And so she'll go roaming through the yard looking for mom, dad, anybody who will help her. She'll go up in through the house. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky because if you don't have, you know, the bathroom door locked or the bedroom door locked, this kid will come flying in asking their question for you to move their bike. Okay? Kids are like that. They'll, they'll seek things out to ask for help. And I believe like this is the nature of our prayer that God wants to see. Not just simply a flippant asking, but actually a, a, we're willing to put some effort into it. The next one is, is knocking. This suggests uh, perseverance and persistence in overcoming odds that are in the way. That an obstacle might be there, but we're not taking no for an answer. We will knock and keep knocking until we have what we desire. Just like Maya at that door. You can be in the washroom, door's locked, she'll knock and she'll keep knocking and she'll keep knocking until you open that door and answer her question. Again, maybe in a different example, it's not about just um, needing a job and asking God for a job or for provision of your need. But maybe seeking is like looking, being active and looking who needs help or where are the opportunities. And then knocking is maybe, it's that in, again, that increasing level of investment and risk where we're actually showing up, asking for jobs, handing out resumes, knocking on doors, looking for God's will and looking for the answer that he has for us. God desires the same with us in our prayer life. I think these verses show us clearly that there's an increasing level of investment in what we're praying for. Because in the same time that Maya's out looking for dad to help her get her bike down out of the shed, she might become distracted by something else or decide my request isn't worth the effort it's going to take me to get there. So she'd give up on it. And at the same time, I think God sometimes delays answering our prayers to see if we know how much we need it or how much we want it. And he desires to see a people who are not just asking, but they're seeking and they're knocking and they're leaning in to wanting to see this prayer request fulfilled. And let's keep in mind that the context of these verses, again, as I said, that these are kingdom things that we're asking for. Jesus had just taught on a a whole thing of not building your own kingdom, but seeking first God's kingdom. He's not saying that he doesn't care about our earthly requests, by no means. He's just saying those should not be in priority over kingdom things. And when it comes to kingdom things, we ought to have a mindset that asks, seeks, and is willing to knock. And I love the part just before I move on, but it says that everyone receives who asks along these lines. Not just seeking to build their own kingdom, which will not last for long, but seeking his kingdom, which lasts forever. Requests along these lines, Jesus says, are absolutely 100% guaranteed to be answered. What a guarantee. You can take that to the bank. So there we have it, ask in an acronym. But we move on from here. Jesus moves on and now he wants to unpack the reasoning behind 
to what is it that we owe this pleasure of being able to so boldly request from God and be so guaranteed an answer? How is that even possible? And so he moves on here to verses 9 and verses 10, to which, in Jesus' fashion, he asks questions in a way that reveal a lot about our hearts. And so we're moving on to the trust kind of component now. And so here we go, verses 9 and 10. He says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Now, I know some of you in here, some parents in, our, in here, are definitely saying, well, it depends on what time they're asking me this. Because most of the times I just say, wait till dinner, wait till breakfast, wait till lunch, right? It's like, because kids are hungry all the time, aren't they? Anybody else relate with that? Kids? I know there's kids in here. How many of you kids feel like you are hungry all the time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Marcus, I see that hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Caleb? Oh, no doubt. We're hungry. You're hungry all the time. You're always asking for food. It's always a good time to eat, right? Can I ask you another question? Why is it you're never hungry at the dinner table? I'm perplexed by that. My kids will eat all day, and then they just play with their food at dinner time. I'm like, what's going on? And kids, how many of you, how many of you, if, if you were hungry and you asked for some bread or a bag of Doritos, and how would you feel if your parents gave you a stone? Imagine that. You'd feel, you'd feel like slighted or hurt. Or you'd be like, I hope you have a great dental plan because here it goes. Right? Or if you're hungry and you ask for some meat and they, they give you a venomous snake to play with. Some of you, I know, bad example. JJ would be like, that's awesome. That's what I'm asking for. Right? But you'd be like, your parents... They want to give you good things. We all know that if a kid is hungry, we want that hunger to be satisfied. So we want to give them good food. And so don't miss what's happening here because Jesus goes on from here and look at how he answers this question in verse 11. He says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you Good gifts to those who ask him. And this is just one verse, but it's actually brilliant the way that Jesus does this. He's actually arguing from the least to the greatest. It's sort of like a form of, of, of conversing with people where, of course, everyone knows. Yeah, of course, I'm going to give my kid, they need food. I'm going to give them food that they can actually eat, not something that's going to be harmful. And Jesus turns in and he says, yes, you, even though you are evil, now, some of you, don't be distracted by that. Jesus is well aware of the reality that we live in a fallen world and that we don't get things perfectly. And so he's bringing attention to that. He's saying, we live in a fallen world. We don't measure up to God's standard. There is evil all around us. And let me tell you, as a parent, oh, parenting brings you often face-to-face with the evil that resides inside. Uh, already, the, I love giving you guys examples of like, the sermon prep week uh, illustrations, but uh, literally had a case where I'd asked my eldest daughter to do something and she kind of half-heartedly didn't really oblige and I'd asked and asked and asked and then finally I was just like rip-snorking mad and I was like, fine, like, forget it. And I was like, and I, and I, and I, I took away something that her and I were pl- had planned on doing later on that day. I just said, okay, we're not, we're not doing that. 
you can't listen, you know. And I realized, oh my goodness, like it didn't come from a great place. And I realized I'm so broken and there's an evilness. Even though in my, in my heart of hearts, I desire to give good things to my children, I know that I live in a world that's broken. And Jesus makes this argument. He says, you, though you are evil, though you live in brokenness, even though you know to give good gifts to your children, look what he compares it to. How much more does your father in heaven want to give good gifts to those who ask? It's like there's no comparison. It's infinitely more. And with this, I'd like to take a closer look at that summit I was telling you about. Can you bring that slide up, please, Tim? Here's a zoom in on our summit of the Sermon on the Mount. And it, it really applies here, I think, to what Jesus is saying. So the summit is sort of this idea of like three words about worship. And on one side, you've got, he does a little bit of teaching about giving. Then he touches on prayer. And then he touches on fasting. And so, because of that structure, we end up with prayer right at the very peak. And so it's really neat how he does this. On the first side um, of the Lord's Prayer now is what we're looking at. I'll get you to bring that next slide up, Tim. He's talking about kingdom focus, right? Seeking God's kingdom first. And aren't you, aren't you glad that Jesus is so consistent? He follows his own preaching. That even in the teaching people to prayer, he's saying, seek God's kingdom first. The way that he teaches to pray is all about seeking God's kingdom. So we have, hallowed be your name. So there's one word, praising God. Very important. Second, Lord, let your kingdom come. And thirdly, let your will be done. So all kingdom-focused things. And then he switches over Onto the other side, three other words here in the Lord's Prayer, which have to do with earthly focus. He's not ignorant that we need these things. Look how he unpacks it. He says, God, provide for us our daily bread, because that's important. Forgive us our debts, and deliver us from the evil one. All things that we face here on earth, in real time, that God says, absolutely, we need to be praying about these things. But can I let you in on something? There's a tying phrase that I find so amazing about the Lord's Prayer. And I, I actually had never seen it or noticed it until prepping for, the, for today. And here it is. Look at this. The, at the absolute summit of the Lord's Prayer, the peak of the Sermon on the Mount, is this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. And it captures with it that idea that God is interested in bringing his kingdom, his rule and reign on earth, just like it exists in heaven, in perfection. Isn't that good news? That even in the reality that we live in a fallen world that's messed up and there's hurt, that Jesus, God himself, decided to enter into this world and bring us the, the gift of the kingdom. To usher in a different reality. A kingdom is somewhere where the king reigns. And Jesus is introducing the kingdom to earth. That as it is in heaven, so let it be here on earth. The climax of the sermon, what I, what I believe is sort of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so going back to our verses there before, it becomes about trust. Did you notice how his questions had to do with bread and fish, concerns of earth? And then Jesus flips it and says, how much more 
Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? And I believe that that includes earthly blessings, sustenance, things that we need, but only secondary to the gifts of the kingdom. That God is much more interested in providing for his disciples these gifts of the kingdom, these answered prayers. And it leads me to go, oh, what is this? What is this all? What does this all mean? We can't miss the dichotomy here. So this contrasting of two things that seem to be opposed to each other, right? Kingdom things and earthly things. They're on separate things. And yet, as the Lord's prayer shows us, God is interested in bringing those two things absolutely one and together. That on earth as it is in heaven, God would rule. So those are the two points for my second point, if that makes sense. Heavenly things, earthly things being brought together. Mm, I think I've covered all that. I'm doing great here. This is good. (laughs) The point is that the Heavenly Father gives heavenly gifts, gifts of His kingdom. And from earlier, we remember that Jesus is encouraging us to ask along these lines. Not just ask, but seek and knock, pursuing his kingdom in that fashion. And when it's pursued in that fashion, every prayer gets answered. Every prayer gets answered. Because it's the work that God is doing. Now, obviously, too, with these verses about giving gifts and the how much more, God isn't interested in giving gifts that are going to harm us, right? In the same way that with our kids, I want to give them gifts that are going to be a blessing to them, something that they can enjoy. And even if my kid gets it wrong and asks for something, but I have the wisdom and foresight to know that it's going to be something that will do more damage or more harm or needs to be coached, I'm obviously going to withhold that. And so it's from this posture too that we can trust that our God is who he says he is. And that he doesn't wish to give us gifts or to allow things into our lives that will break us or overthrow us or throw us into chaos. But the catch is that we need to trust. Isn't that the greatest thing about the Christian faith? Is that it's, we have access to God as our Father. The ability to make requests through what Christ has done directly to him. There's no medium, there's no filtering, there's no priest, there's no other subsequent things that we must go through. It's simply we get to come boldly before God and make our requests. That we can trust him as Just that, our heavenly Father who gives good gifts. And we get the notion that he's excited and delights in giving us gifts of the kingdom. So how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, I feel like verse 12, we move into sort of the golden rule here. I feel like this sort of flushes it out for us. 
And I've titled it sort of this notion of obey, but I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit. So with those three points moving to two points, moving to this point, the golden rule, and here it is in verse 12, he says, and I didn't want us to miss. Did you see that, how I make my notes? I don't want you to miss this. So in everything, so Jesus is giving instruction now, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And with that phrase, the law and the prophets, Jesus is actually going to transition, and we'll look into it more in the following weeks, but this notion of moving to an exhortation. And, but he sums everything up. Look what he does here. In the same way that he fulfills the law and the prophets, Jesus makes a statement here that is intended to sum it all up. The whole book, all of it, what it's about. And he puts it in this way. He says, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up law and the prophets. Now, I found it really interesting. And look at that, guys. I'm right on, I'm, I'm already, we're coming in. We're coming in for a landing. It's going to be graceful. It's going to be great. I found out that there's, there's other rabbis during Jesus' era, or in around that time frame, that Everyone was sort of making an attempt to sum up what the law and prophets were all about. And one of the famous guys back then, and I I believe Pastor Steve actually taught on this a a number of weeks ago, or has mentioned it, I have that recollection in my head, um, about a a guy, I think his name is Hillel. And the way that he summed it up, it was sort of the reverse of this, of what Jesus is saying, or did Jesus do the reverse of what he was saying maybe, because I think he came first. It was whatever is hateful to other, or whatever is hateful to you, do not do to others. So that's how he framed it. The law and the prophets, living a good Torah life, is what's hateful to you, don't do that to others. But if you look at that statement, it gets us to focus on what's negative, what's hurtful, what's evil. We focus on that and we go, well, I don't want to, I shouldn't do that to other people. And so it kind of creates this this attitude of, of being passive, of of not doing, of stepping back, of creating distance, of making sure that you're not harming other people. And in the first century, much of how how Jews lived their life was according to the Torah and the Ten Commandments, which was all about do not do, do not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Sort of a list of don'ts. And here it's brilliant that Jesus is changing that, that he doesn't want, the kingdom of God is not about being passive in our belief, but there's a notion to it where it's active and moving and advancing. And I think that's the thing that Jesus is wanting to communicate to his hearers, is that do unto others is what you would have done unto you. That is, you would want to be loved and as you want to be cared for and as you know what is right and you would want to be treated in that fashion, take that very notion that exists in your mind and apply that to somebody else. Do it. And now I, I get this sense that, that sometimes, and I, I've struggled with this in my, in my own walk with the Lord before, in, in learning to kind of hear his voice and be moved by the Spirit, where this, there's this notion that I'm like, God, I just want you to tell me exactly what I'm supposed to be doing all the time. Every moment. You know? Like, so that when I wake up in the morning... And I swing my feet out of bed, and I always go for my sock drawer. I don't know why. It's right by my bed. I go for my sock drawer, and I reach in, and I grab a pair of socks. I want the Spirit of God to say to me, no, Chris, the other socks. 
the ones with holes in them. Because I want you to be holy because I'm holy. And I go, okay, Lord. I'll suffer with my big toe sticking out all day. And when I go to the cupboard to get my cereal, and I reach for the honey nut Cheerios, and the voice of God says, no, Chris. Jen bought those original Cheerios for a reason. Those ones that taste like bark. (laughs) They're better for you. Eat those ones. And I go, okay. And we live so much of our lives that way. Don't you find that? Where we're, we're all in with our faith, where we want, God, I just want you to tell me exactly what you want me to do every moment or every day. I just know that I'm getting it right. And God isn't interested in robots. He's not interested in, in having a binary system where it just does exactly what it's supposed to do. You're a person, and he wants to be in relationship with you. And so he gives you a great deal of freedom in the midst of that. To choose and to walk. One of the ways that I I understand this golden rule is a really practical, if you're not if you're not super familiar with kind of hearing God or or knowing kind of sensing God speaking to you, and for some that just seems weird. Like I Jen's got friends that were like when they heard that she would share with them that, you know, we felt like God told us to go to Moose Jaw, they, like their minds explode that they're like, you're claiming that the God of all the universe spoke to you. And they'll go, yeah, right. Because they don't understand the whole story. They don't understand that that's what Jesus purchased for us is a direct line to hear God. But if you're new and you're not sure, sure how that all looks or you're just trying to figure it out, much like how I, st- I still am fumbling my way through it, the golden rule gives us a good platform for stepping out on that he says whatever do whatever good you want do that for others and so to be honest with you in preparation for this message i actually tried that there was a day earlier this week where i was headed home and i this isn't like virtue casting or anything like that i'm just i'm just trying to make a an illustration from from my life so, uh, I was on my way home, and it had been a long day at the office, and I was tired, and I was like, okay, I just really want to, I just really want to kind of, I want to get home, I want the meal to be set out, I want my kids to be quiet, I want Jenna to be standing there with like my favorite supper, so I can just sit down, relax, and eat, right? Every guy, you go off for a hard day's work, you come, that's what you want, you know, at least they did in the 1950s, right? But I had that. But my sermon was sort of on my heart, and I go, okay, that's the good that I want. I just want to take a break. I just want to be left, like, left alone and just to kind of at peace. And I walk into the house. And of course, it's chaos. Like, that could come out wrong. My wife does an amazing job <laughs> at home. Amazing job. <laughs> All moms do an amazing job. I think she stepped out. I said, thank you. Diaper change. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I get there and I go, okay, the good that I want done to me, I'm going to just trust God with it. God, you know my need. You know how I'm feeling. I'm going to leave that in your hands. Because I can. Because if he is who he says he is, and he's going to provide for me the way that he says he does and promises does, then the issue is my level of trust. So I go, okay, I'm going to trust you with that. I'm going to come in and I'm going to do to others. And now I wish I could tell you I set the table, made supper, and just rocked it. 
Like, the bar is much lower for me, okay? But I did, I went in, and you know what? My attitude had changed. My attitude had shifted. Where I wasn't interested in the existence of my family to serve me, but I was interested in serving them. And so I took Autumn and gave Jen a hand and helped kind of get things arranged so that we could sort of quasily all get to the dinner table at the same time with a meal and enjoy it together. You know what? It wasn't a big deal. I don't, I don't necessarily even know that Jenna noticed. But do you know what went off in my heart? Is the reality that, guys, this is the stuff of the kingdom. This is what Jesus teaches about and preaches about and what he calls us to. Is to love in a self-sacrificial way. And so I feel like that's where this plane lands this morning. Is that so often, you guys, we make our faith all about us. And we treat it about even coming to church sometimes, about what I'm going to get, and songs if I like, and da, da, da. And, and the, our faith is, is twisted and turned, and, and the focus is still what we get. And God is inviting us into the, the realities of the kingdom that says, you have a God who promises that if you're asking for kingdom things, he's absolutely going to give those to you. But we need to be willing to ask, but we also need to be willing to trust that he knows best. Because he is Heavenly Father, and he gets to make that call. And in the God that I know, and in the God that I've come to know and love, I go, he is trustworthy. And then the focus becomes obeying. And it's not mindless obedience in in subjectivity, but it's as participants in the kingdom. As participants in God's glory, God's rule, God's reign, coming to earth and being lived out and given expression through our very lives. And it counts. Those little decisions that you make, those little things that you change your attitude and you go, this is what I want, but I'm going I'm to put a hold on that. I'm going to trust God with that. And I see a need or I, I know that I would want to be welcomed. I would want to be loved. I'd be provided for. That you step out to help. You step out to bless. You step out to love. That is the stuff of the kingdom. Amen? And it counts. And this is Jesus' invitation to take us from a people that are passive in our faith and avoiding and creating space and distance so that we don't harm. He wants us to be an army of love that marches into darkness, bringing the kingdom and rule of God's glory. That's what he desires to do with our lives. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to close us in prayer. I believe the worship team is going to come. And they're going to lead us in a, a last song. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And we thank you that you came. You came. You brought heaven to earth. And we thank you that you consider our lives so valuable, so precious to you and the Father, that you actually want to bring your rule and reign and the kingdom of God to this earth, to our workplace, to our families, to whatever situation we're facing, whatever situation is is causing instability or unrest or unsure. Lord, you want a faith that is bolsterous and vibrant and real because it's placed in who you are. 
I thank you that we can come to you and we can ask, seek, and knock, and you're delighted to give. I thank you that you are a loving Father who is trustworthy in all you do, even when it's beyond our understanding. And I thank you that you call us to this gift, this blessing of walking in obedience to what you've instructed. Knowing that with every decision, with every step, with every act of obedience, it's your kingdom coming in and through our lives to this world. What a delight it is to worship you. Thank you for changing our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.